my favorite scenario to be in is moving sport. I think that that's when I'm sort of at my best. But it, it's one that we're really fortunate to have available to us as practitioners on the, the performance and medicine side is that our skill sets are sort of agnostic, right? And so I think you've got to approach it with that confidence that if you're a sports coach, you, you're really stuck into your sport. You know, if you're at the top, there's, there's only a handful of jobs for you. For us, we get to, to be in that bigger pool. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So this week, I am delighted to welcome Jeremy Bettel on the Pacey Performance Podcast. So Jeremy is Performance Director at New York City Football Club in the MLS in Major League Soccer. So in this episode, we have a little chat around leadership as well as building a philosophy. But most importantly, we have a little chat around Jeremy's extensive experience across multiple different sports. So he's worked in rugby high ice hockey, collegiate sport, basketball, and latest football. So we have a chat around what he does in them first 30 days, 60 days, and 90 days in an organization, but also what he does in the lead up to starting in a new organization or a new sport, the preparation that he does. And the reason for that is because I think there's a transition happening in our industry where the traditional football guy or rugby guy or cricket guy is becoming a thing of the past and employers are actually wanting diversity of thought. So somebody that's been employed in multiple different organizations, multiple different sports, and we're seeing that all over the place. So I want to get Jeremy's take on that and how he goes about implementing implementing his system and his philosophy into a new sport. So fantastic episode coming up, especially if you're one looking to experience different sports. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Samson Equipment. Samson Equipment has been manufacturing elite strength equipment since 1976. Based in New Mexico, Samson provides professional weight room solutions for those looking to lead the way in advancing our strength and conditioning profession. Being a direct manufacturer, the team at Samson brings fully customization capabilities in not only branding, but in custom equipment needed to execute your programming. The Samson team brings many years of experience not only in coaching, but in manufacturing high quality strength equipment. So there is no vision too great. If you can dream it, they can build it. Find them on social media at Samson underscore EQ. And for more information, visit their website, samsonequipment.com or email Andy at Andy at samsonequipment.com. And this episode is also sponsored by Black Box Fitness. Black Box Fitness are leaders in performance training equipment and facility design. Blackbox are specialists in designing and building performance facilities for sports teams and strength and conditioning coaches. Blackbox manufacture and distribute a full range of strength training equipment from their headquarters in Belfast right across Europe. If you want to learn more about Blackbox, check out their website blackboxfitness.com or follow them on social media at blackboxfitness. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. 
The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Jeremy. Jeremy Bettle, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to chat to you. Rob, it's an honour to be on, mate. No, thank you for coming on. And pleasantly surprised, obviously I know you were a Brit, but um, pleasantly surprised that you went to university up near my neck of the woods at Leeds Beckett. Yeah, had a great time up in Leeds. Had uh, three years up there and thoroughly enjoyed my time. Yeah, nice. And I was saying to you just before we hit record that I don't think I've had anyone on the podcast who has got the breadth and experience in so many different sports as you. There's a few up there who've got maybe two or three, three or four, but it's the list is long as your arm with the, the sports that you've been involved <laughs> in, which is the predominantly the main reason that I wanted to talk to you and, and go down that route and have a little chat about your experiences. So thank you very much for coming on. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, would you mind just giving us a brief background on you and what you're currently doing? Yeah, so um, as you said, I went to university back in the UK, up in Leeds. Um, graduated uh, with an undergrad back in 2002 and then worked at David Lloyd's in Leicester for uh, for a year and uh, found it rather unfulfilling and, and just thought, you know, with a degree in exercise science, there's got to be more to it than, than training your average job. Um, so I ended up coming over to the States to do my master's, went to Middle Tennessee State just outside Nashville. Um, while I was there, they asked me to stay on and do my PhD. So um, I agreed to do that, much to the annoyance of my wife. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, from there, got a, a contact with USA Rugby. Um, and that was sort of the, the first thing that, that kicked the ball ball off rolling to, uh, to my career here. So worked for USA Rugby through the 2007 World Cup. Um, then went out to uh, Santa Barbara and worked in private practice physical therapy for a little bit basically because I, I realized that I didn't know anything about that realm and my athletes were going to be injured at, at all times, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to have to learn more formally how to um, sort of modify their programs, keep them training because they're not necessarily missing games, but they're going to be out. So then from from there, once I've got some experience um, with uh, Hayashida and Associates, I went over to UC Santa Barbara where I was the head strength coach. Um, had a wonderful few years there, um, oversaw 20 teams, I think it's uh, 11 different sports. Um, just, I, I'd probably count that as my, my top experience in, in sport. You just, you're seeing so much, uh, volume of athletes, you're seeing all, all sorts of variety. Um, and while I was there, did some work with P3 down in, um, in Santa Barbara there, uh, with Maury, um, sorry, with Marcus Elliott, um, and uh, finished up my PhD there with him. We looked at, at real, uh, reactive agility, um, and then I was was really fortunate, you know, uh, working with Marcus. Got introduced to uh, Darren Williams while he was playing for the Utah Jazz. 
He then got traded out to um, to the Nets. They were still in New Jersey at the time. And um, he and Marcus had been talking about uh, placing a strength coach out there. And I was fortunate enough to be that person. So moved out to, uh, to Jersey with four days notice and took my wife from uh, sunny California to New Jersey in the middle of January for a but about an 80 delighted. degree, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> an 80 degree temperature swing. <laughs> so that wasn't ideal, but uh, yeah, that, that started the ball rolling. So uh, into pro sport for the NBA, spent uh, four years with the Nets, um, then got a call um, if I was interested in uh, the director of sports science and performance job with the Toronto Maple Leafs up in the NHL, which was a, just a spectacular opportunity at a, a monster organization. Um, after four years there, got a, a call from the Anaheim Ducks and did I want to come and sort of replicate what I'd, I'd done in Toronto out in Anaheim. Um, and then after a couple of years, right after COVID, um, sort of shifted priorities a little bit to focus a little more on Michelle and I and have some time at home and, and moved over to the MLS with, with New York. Nice. And here we are. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's such an interesting story. The recruitment of the position that you ended up filling, was that through David? Uh, uh, yes. So, okay. yeah. yeah. So Dave, Dave Slemon was involved in that process. Um, sort of a funny story. I'd, I'd been introduced to David Lee, the sporting director here, um, a, f- a couple of months prior uh, through a mutual friend of ours. And, and we were having some some discussions and, you know, he was starting to frame out that performance director role. Um, and so when, when the job came available, he sort of floated the idea that maybe I, I would be interested, um, not thinking necessarily that I would be. And so, yeah, let's, let's give it a go. The timing was right and, uh, and it, it worked out really well. So, so yeah, then, then, uh, Dave and I know one another, Dave Slamman and I know one another anyway. So he connected us and started the process. Nice. Yeah, Dave's been on the podcast. His yeah, podcast yeah, yeah. went down a storm. It was it was such an interesting take for, on recruitment from the other side, from the recruiter side. Obviously, that that area is booming, especially people at the level that you're talking about and that you're at. Um, but just getting some insights into what recruiters are actually looking for, what employers are actually looking for, and then try to filter that down the system to, you know, your head strength coaches or your assistant strength coaches, and just get an insight and hints and tips from. Dave, who's looking at this from a, from obviously the side, um, to to help those uh, practitioners out there. So it went down a storm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Dave's great too, and he's so so personable and and sort of wanting to help more than anything, you know. So um, he and I have sort of go back uh, quite a way, you know, with our, our relationship. So mm. yeah, it's great. So the first thing I want to dive into is there's been lots of transitions between roles between different sports. That may be something that puts people off in the transition from a rugby to a football or, in your case, from an ice hockey to a to a football or to a soccer. And how you actually go about making that transition, having not been a football guy or a basketball guy or an ice hockey guy. What's your process when you get even thinking about making a jump to a different sport? And then what does that process look like once you're there? Yeah, it's it's actually my favorite scenario to be in is moving sport i think that that's when i'm sort of at my best um 
and I know it's the right move because I'm scared to death. You know, you're absolutely terrified because it's a brand new culture, all new norms, customs, you know, just just traditions within the sport. Um, so it, it's a really intimidating process. Um, but it, it's one that we're really fortunate to have available to us as practitioners on the, the performance and medicine side is that our skill sets are sort of agnostic. Right. And so I think you've got to approach it with that confidence that if you're a sports coach, you, you're really stuck into your sport. You know, if you're at the top, there's, there's only a handful of jobs for you. For us, we get to, to be in that bigger pool. So it, it starts out, I think, with a belief that you can do it. And then as you're as you sort of build your practice, I think I think you go from everything being really, really complicated to actually quite simple. You, you start boiling it back down. And, and when you look at that, I think that there are huge similarities, you know, and, and if you look at the sports themselves, basketball and ice hockey really couldn't be much more different. You know, everything being vertical for the most part in basketball and entirely lateral in, in ice hockey. But the big rocks of athleticism are sort of the same. You know, you've got tall athletes moving sideways, right? And and so when you're training for that trait and and you analyze the sport and you, you pull out those sort of biomechanical uh, motions that are predominant in that sport and you just look to train them. Right? And, and so it, it's not as complicated as I think we can make it out in our head. And it's certainly not as complicated as people who've only been within one sport think it is. You know, everybody likes to think their sport is special and unique and you know i i know like you do squats in hockey but you know it's not that's not football it's different, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's different in football yeah. Yeah. okay yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah it's 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 a very intimidating process to start with but i find that some somewhat more from a cultural perspective and, and that learning curve um initially is absolutely immense and but that's what i enjoy about it you know you 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 get to go in with a fresh set of eyes, no preconceived notions. Um, and you get to slowly over time, just see where your, your philosophies can, can plug in and, and where you can identify gaps and, and bring things from other experiences that you've had um, to enhance an already really good system. Has there been any, any examples that you can think of reflect on your own path when you're diving into these different sports where you've tried to bring a previous methodology, previous thought process into a new organization that hasn't worked. Yeah. It's worked in this environment. So you've thought, great, it'll work in this one. And it's flopped or yeah. not gone as well as you thought. Can you explain any examples? Yeah, of that absolutely. Course? And I, you know where I, where I think that that happened to me um, it was probably not moving sport, but moving within a sport. Because I think there's a level of complacency when you go go within a sport that it's just going to be the same. And so I, I sort of went in and and sort of I, I thought you'd just be able to take the system that I'd spent four or five years building and just start. It'd be year five, but in the new place and, and forgot all the work that I'd done year one, year two, year three to compound those effects to get to where we were 
which was a really elite system by the time we were up and running. But the new environment just wasn't even close to ready for it. Right. And so then you sort of, you walk in and you think, oh, so much low light fruit here. I can just start picking it up quick, like day one, start making changes. And you walk into a group of people who don't actually know that there's change needed yet. And then you start sort of moving everything around and people get defensive. And now you're sort of behind the eight ball a little bit in terms of um, you're trying to dig yourself out of a hole because you've you've immediately come in and put people's guards up. I've got a little question off the back of that. Just write it down so I don't forget. Interesting. So you move into an organization... And you're the change because you've been you've been brought in, but the people in the organization or the organization as a whole doesn't know that the change is needed, or doesn't think the change is needed. How do you attack that? Or attack is probably the wrong word. How do you tackle that? <laughs> <laughs> um, usually, people think it's someone else that has to change within the organization. You know, I, I sort of told that to. Um, James Morton the other day on a, a chat we had with, that people are generally excited for someone else to change when you go into an organization. Oh, the medical guys, yeah, they really need to get their stuff together. Or, oh, the strength coach is terrible, you know. And so how I approach it now is different than how I did at that point. You know, just just sort of gangbusters go in and and, and try and make that change fit just right away, just start telling people how we were going to change things. Um, essentially my job is a change management process as much as it is um, a performance director's role where you're really addressing performance because you're dealing with people who are at the top of their game and have been at the top of professional sport for a long time and have had a lot of success with the way they've been doing things. And so for me now, the process is more to go into an environment and and sit back and observe for a little bit. Now, it depends very much on the organization how much time they'll give you. You know, certain places they're demanding results the day you get hired. Um, other places, uh, like here in New York, it was it was a slower process for me. I came in mid season, which um, makes it easier for you to come in and not make changes. Um, and so for the first thirty days, I really didn't do anything on the the job I just sort of watched and observed and what that allowed me to do was see the things that were going really well you know and, and that's something I've missed previously in in coming in and trying to change day one and make it my system um, you miss that richness that you're getting um, from the, the quality of the practitioners you're moving into and then what you can do is start slowly plugging in areas that you think you can help and, and sort of be a force multiplier rather than just sweep everything out and here's what we're doing. And it also creates a sense that it's our program as opposed to it's my program. I'm coming in and, and delivering this to you and I'm going to take all the credit for it um, or I'm going to blame you when it doesn't work. You know, And so I think that that has helped these change processes go much better when we sit down and we actually create them together. Um, and we don't flush down the toilet all the stuff that people are doing really well. So the first 30 days, you were given the opportunity to, to watch and, and observe. In this current role, what would the next 30 days look like? So up to 60 days and then up to 90 days. So 
up to 60, you, you're starting to look at the the subtle changes that, because again, we were in season, so I didn't want to change too much right away that was going to create big changes in the athletes' routines, um, particularly as we, we build up to game day. So starting to address things like um, any concerns we have with the, the nutrition, the menu, you know, things that are changing behind the scenes that are sort of happening to the athlete versus them having to actually participate in. Um, starting to design that environment a little better around the, um, the training facility. One of my philosophies around that is that the athlete sort of jumps in the river at, at the front door and they flow through the system that you've got them in and it, it sort of happens to them. And so they ha- actually we'll come have back to, to that because I'd love to get some more detail on that. Yeah. I'm telling you, which is a reminder to me. So sorry, yeah, carry, yeah, yeah. carry on. <laughs> so yeah, so they, they sort of flow through this river. Um and when you look at um like Richard Thaler's work that he got the Nobel Prize for Economics on on, on behavioral economics, it, it's designing the environment to sort of tilt the board your way and help them make better decisions. So that they're, they're in your system. And they have to try very hard to not be because the whole environment is sort of designed to keep them within it. So these are little things that, that we can do just to have the environment happen to the athlete. Um, and then we start, you know, with, with guys who may be out injured, we start looking at, at how um, are we progressing them through a, a rehabilitation program? Because those guys we can change quite a lot for quite quickly. Um and so really establishing some some very good, very objective rehabilitation processes, um, really integrating um, performance and medicine and sports science and nutrition, making sure that it's a multidisciplinary approach to every problem that we're trying to solve. And then as we go into that 90 days, and, the, and it's more of a sort of graded curve than it's a, a okay, at 90 days, we're, we're doing this. Um, we just start tweaking how the athletes are, are starting to do things, right? So whether it's um, we create an appointment-based schedule in the in the training room, right? And and we see every athlete uh, every week, regardless of whether they're injured or not. Uh, we have some objective parameters that we're going to assess the uh, injury risk factors against, right? And so these are the the sort of changes that we make. And then once we get to the off season, now we we can make big, big changes. So when they walk back into the facility, they see and feel a change um, in the environment. Let's go back to what that environment and what the environment looks like and how you change things, alter things so they flow through that river the way that you want them to to make better better decisions. So when they enter the training facility, what kind of alterations are you making to make that do what you want it to do. I think this would be a really interesting one for people because I think they may assume, or I would may I would assume that when someone like you comes in, it's doing the things like you said at 60, 90 days will be the first things that you want to do. You want to make changes that uh everyone can see. Not for the just for the case that every, for the fact that everyone can see it, but it's the things that may make the difference now. But actually, this environmental piece is something that's going to impact 
everything moving forwards for the 30, 60, 90, one year, two years. So I think it'd be interesting for people to see what tweaks you make on this front. Yeah, so for me, it's about what order do you want things to happen in? You know, and so I think we got this really, I was, I was fortunate coming into New York in that the city group, the city football group have put a lot of thought into um, environmental design and, and into the, the the sort of makeup and the flow of the practice facility. But um, in Toronto, we, we sort of crafted it to where you'd come in and you'd already done, maybe it was your wellness questionnaire. That was the first piece on your phone. And so we knew what was going on when people come in. And then as you come in to the the building, we set up the, we built a kitchen and, and set up a nice lounge and, and made it an environment where people were attracted to, put in really nice coffee machine and, and this sort of stuff. And then we, we hired a chef uh, and this was a four-year process. Don't mm. I didn't come in like in the first thirty days and build a kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we we hired a chef um, who was an an elite chef, but very interested in sort of performance nutrition. Um, and so we crafted the menu to to fuel whatever the the day of, of activity was or what the week looked like. But then we also sourced food from the local Mennonite community. Right. And so it was it was grass uh, fed beef. It was, you know, all organic. And it, so you've got this, these beautiful foods that, that are going to fuel the athlete. But more than that, it's going to build the athlete's body. I think we turn over the every cell in the human body every two years. We're, we're building new humans. Right. So we sort of guide them through that. And you've got a, a nice omelet station and we're, we're sort of fueling them for the day. And then from there, they, they sort of flow into the change room, get changed and into the, the training room where they they have their appointments. And then from there, they flow directly into the weight room where they all have an individualized um, corrective program um, based on the, the screening we'd do. They have a, a warm-up that they'll do that's individualized. Then we'd go into the lift, um, which we'd do as a group uh, with with some individualization within it, but for the most part, just it was a a group lift, um, and then they go through into the the meeting, and then out onto the ice, and and again, it just created a flow, even down to the, the equipment guys in Toronto Hood that put um, a little uh, trash can next to each guy's locker so they weren't throwing tape into the middle and it was all over the place just it was right next to you just really really small details like that that were um really well crafted to keep the the place looking nice as well because we we just thought and this came from our president brendan shanahan um if the guys see the place looking really nice and and clean and well kept and orderly they will keep it looking like that you know, and they'll respect it. And that that's what we wanted it to be an environment that was sort of about excellence and um, about them respecting the environment and the club and the history. So we made sure that was very, very present within the club. One thing I'm conscious of is that there'll be 99.9% of listeners won't be in a position like yours, although extremely interesting. They're probably trying to 
understand, okay, I'm a, I'm going to be a new member of staff in a new org, in an organization, but I'm not going to be at director level. I'm going to be at assistant level. I'm going to be a, you know, regular strength coach or whatever that may be, but still want to go in and put their own tweak on things, make little changes here and there, just like you did, but at very much a higher level. What would your advice be to those who want to make a change, but want to be conscious of the, the current regime and all that kind of stuff? And obviously, answering to their superiors of what can be changed and what can't. So what would be your advice when it comes to going into a new role, new organization, new sport, and trying to put their own stamp on it? I think your statement there on, on a very clear understanding of what can be changed and what can't. Um, one of the things that's sort of core to my philosophy is we spend very little time worrying about what we can't change. Um, and, and then within your own environment, that's what you're responsible for ultimately. You know, it, that was my space in, in Brooklyn. I was the strength coach and that weight room, the, the atmosphere in there, which was one where athletes could come in and feel comfortable to, to vent and share and, and hang out as, as well as get their work in. Um, how we crafted that to optimize the, the workouts we were doing, whether it was changing out equipment, getting new. Um, that was the piece I controlled. And then building the relationships with your your coworkers in other departments to create influence. You know, and and not through coming in and telling them how it should be done, but understanding their role, understanding where they can help you and you might be able to help them. And, and sort of again, working to co-create some programs and, and create change together um, versus coming in with the answers, you know, which I've certainly been guilty of. Um, but then you, you get to work with the nutritionist. You get to work with the psychologist, right? And, and you get to build a multidisciplinary program yourself um, through your own relationship skills versus um, having the authority to just come in and say, no, this is changing. So we're just going to take a very quick break in my chat with Jeremy. So in part two, we have a chat around transitioning from being a practitioner into being a leader. And that only that not only is applicable to those who are going into director of position like Jeremy, but also those who are leading interns or leading assistants. Then we have a chat around the gaps in performance departments and how staff can plug them. So really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer-life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defense, 
and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website imeasureu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. And this episode is also sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. And now back to the episode with Jeremy. You mentioned philosophy there and what your philosophy is. I'm interested, always interested to hear what people's philosophies are and how they articulate them, especially in a when the, there's a little red button flashing there. Well, it's not actually flashing, but the, the time's going up because we're <laughs> recording. How how people do that in, the, in this environment. So what's what? how would you describe your philosophy? What is your philosophy? Um... Overall, I think it is a multidisciplinary approach to complex problem solving, in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, essentially, I, I don't buy into any of this. Um, injuries are a part of sport. We can't improve an athlete's nutrition. We can't control what they do away from the the rink, the, the court. Um our job at the elite level is to be elite practitioners and mostly that involves education and we're not necessarily limited by our technical knowledge but our application of that knowledge becomes limited so i think if we identify problems that we want to solve you know in toronto we we wanted to go after groin injuries um you can identify through the research what are the key risk factors? And every single person on that multidisciplinary team can impact at least one of those risk factors, whether it's a range of motion, whether it's strength, whether it's uh, ratios and, and, and imbalance. Everybody can, can impact something. And then it's about the group coming up with a systematic way to approach that from the nutrition when they walk in the door all the way through um, medical, all the way through strength and conditioning, through your sports science staff and how they're monitoring everything, through your coaching staff and how you're creating influence with the coach because they're going to have an impact on that injury prevention program. Um, And so you as a group work to solve that problem. No one person can solve it on their own and you certainly can't solve it as separate silos. so yeah, I, th- I think that's the the core of it is everybody attacking a problem from their perspective, monitoring that process, and adjusting based on the outcomes. So the, like you said in Toronto, it was you went after groin injuries. Is that because there were 
higher than what you would ideally want and they were the, the kind of thing that you wanted to focus on? Yep, um, they were quite high coming in and, and it's the big injury in hockey. You know, if you think everything's lateral in hockey, so you take a footballer's legs and you turn them around and the glute becomes the quad and the adductor becomes the hamstring, right? And and that's that's the injury, basically. So we wanted to take that on and, and we did in a systematic way and we ended up, we had an unbelievable staff and so we, we ended up going for about three and a half years without having a non-contact injury, um, which you do it for a year and everyone says how lucky you've been with injuries and you do it for a couple of years and it's like, oh, these guys might be doing something back there. And then you go three years and like, okay, yeah, the system's working, right? So it's um, it's something that you always aspire to. And, and we, of course, we had a, a share of luck, but, um, you know, it, it's a testament to the work that, that my team and my practitioners were doing on, on the ground, you know, and we were being impactful. Um, because we were only going after those things we knew we could change. I know this wasn't the focus of the conversation, but I think we should dive in given the success that you guys had at Toronto with with that particular um, issue that you you faced when you went in. What were the de- what were the details? What what did you change? What did you implement to to try to prevent and successfully prevent groin injuries? And is that something that you can then, I know it's a different sport, I know it's a different team, different organisation, but is there elements of that that you can take into what you're doing now with football players, soccer players? Yeah, of course, you know, and, and it's all just about the underlying principles. So our um, physical therapist uh, up in, in Canada, um, his name's uh, Ryan Morrison, um, just an unbelievably smart and, and detail-oriented physio, um, the first off season, we had him do a big research project and a lit review around uh, the risk factors for groin injuries, and so that was the the foundation. Is okay, let's identify the parts of the problem. Um, so he came back and, and presented to the group, um, and from there we created our um, groin monitoring program. So we identified a series of, of tests that we were going to do every one to two weeks with our players. Um, maybe we would have goalies and defensemen one week and we'd have forwards the next and we'd just alternate them. Um, and we just started building a data set around that. And if somebody was really, really tight, we weren't all that concerned about it so long as it was normal for them. Um, we didn't like extremes. And we didn't like asymmetries. Um, And so we started working to correct those initially. um, And then started just working that program of, okay, so we do our our groin monitoring at the start of the week. And that guided our intervention. So we could identify red flags, which ended up being sort of a standard deviation change one way or the other in any of the tests. And so then we knew ahead of time because we weren't waiting for it to become pain we were treating them every week so if a guy's internal rotation started to to tighten up we would address that that day and the physio would address it in the training room and then the strength coach would address it in the the weight room to to give them strength through that new range 
and then we might flag to the coach hey you know we don't want him to stay out on the ice too long after practice and and so we'd allow that that change to sort of happen <laughs> um and so just approaching it in that systematic manner and making sure we were regularly monitoring it gave us the ability to to head a lot of stuff off um at the pass and then over the years as we built up that database around those injuries it just gave us more confidence in it right and and more sensitivity to change we we sort of boiled it down for, from some factors we didn't think were being very impactful um and and we we started seeing things like anyone who tested in the bottom 30th percentile um every time there was a spike in load they had pain uh in the reductors right and so we knew that those guys coming into training camp were going to be key guys that we needed to improve groin strength you know so little things like that 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 just allowed us to have daily intervention and monitoring um and yeah and then the buying of the coach to not have them on the ice for two and a half hours and you know all, all these little things it, it's everybody doing something rather than me coming in and saying okay here's what we're going to do when you're tackling big issues like that is a lit review always the first place to start from someone on the team and what are the next what are the next steps i know in this instance your grind monitoring program came out the back of it but is there any other places you would go to gather this the intel to so you could make a decision what the program what the what the next step is going to be so lit reviews one what will be the next yeah. one um look we we have a lot of collective wisdom within the group always right and and so maybe people haven't always been given time or uh, or a voice right so if a certain person knows that this is something that's important but the coaches never really prioritized it you know then then it doesn't matter what you know right so we tried to create the space for and time for everybody to do their role and we also um we also gave everybody a voice you know one of the first things we we did there was create morning meetings with the entire multidisciplinary team and give everybody a voice as we reviewed each player on the roster um that's typically not the case when when i've gone into a a place that that's been happening so that that's really important allowing your really high level practitioners to do their job um working on on buy into the program that you put together with the players and with with the coaching staff and management um and so they can sort of back and reinforce it whether it's making certain things mandatory or you know whatever that might look like and then reaching out to subject matter experts you know when in your lit review you'll see certain names coming up over and over again and and making sure that you're reaching out to them and you maybe send them your program like ask ask for a review of your program you ask them to prevent uh, to present to your staff you know the these things that we must never think we've got all the answers you know because there are people out there in the world who study just this one problem that you're trying to take on right and you're trying to build it into this complex environment that you're in um so you must always seek those people out um and then i i think the other thing is not getting caught up in being perfect 
um, none of my programs are perfect. You'd probably look at them and think they were terrible, <laughs> but they work in the environment, right? We we have to find the best bad way of doing things often in pro sport, you know, um, whether you're, you're on the road with an NBA team and you, the only space to do a workout is next to the urinals, which that's a true story. Um, <laughs> so you do it, right? Um, you try and do as much as you can, but you can be paralyzed by the environment because it's so imperfect. When you're playing four times a week, you can go away from lifting because you don't want you guys to be tired. Um, your sleep's never optimal. Um, so you can find so much wrong with the programs. Um, but if you don't start, you'll never do it. And if you wait for it to be perfect, you'll never start. Mm-hmm. I was speaking to someone who was a head strength coach at a Premier League football club here, and he'd come into a, a sorry, a new manager had come into the club, and it wasn't a particularly great culture when it came to to lifting, and his request from the coach was just to just be in the weight room once a week, just be there. Don't you don't have to do anything, but it just shows the players that this is valued by the whole team, and he said that made that changed the game, completely changed the game. Didn't have to say anything just was there 15 minutes talking to players disappeared but it showed that he cared uh, he cared about that particular session which then the players yeah changed their their tune on on, the, on that kind of thing so i just want to change direction a little bit transitioning from a practitioner role to a leadership role and i think i don't know if it was again on the list that you spoke to to james about um in his last couple of weeks but it's something that everyone goes through as they progress through their career, particularly in our um, our field, when there's there's not 30 different uh, rungs in the ladder, there's maybe three or four. You quickly get in, well, not quickly, but you can quickly get into a position where you're not in front of athletes and you're in this more leadership role. And that is of, that's often the best. Best strength coach becomes a leader, but... He's the best strength coach, not the best leader. So how do you, like, it could be, but maybe not. So how do you make that transition? How do you, what things do you put in place? Where do you go for influence? Where do you go to upskill? All these kind of questions that come into my mind when we're talking about this kind of transition. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's a really challenging one. But I think, number one, when you move into a leadership role, especially if you're no longer you know, if you're no longer like the head strength coach when you're going to be doing a bit of work, um, you're not a practitioner anymore. And you you must hire good people and you must let them do their job, number one. Um, many new leaders fail in their first roles because they try and do all of the jobs. And you've sort of matriculated up to the top of your field. And so it, it's on you to find somebody who you trust to do the job, which I, I've been very fortunate to, you know, uh, Matt Herring was um, with me all the way from UC Santa Barbara. He went off to the Spurs. I went to the Nets. And then we teamed back up at the Maple Leafs and just someone that I trusted implicitly to to run that program for me. Um, hiring a good physio like it, it's that knowledge that you aren't the expert in in all of these fields anymore right you need to know 
what you need and who can do it. Um, your job is to empower those people and get the resources for them that they need to execute the overall strategy. Um, I think it's super important that you get yourself a coach because you, often you're in that position because you're the best strength coach, not because you're the best leader, as you said. Um, we do a very poor job of formally, formally educating leadership. We, we focus a lot on being a practitioner on your skill set. And so having a, a coach who can help you identify your blind spots, um, help you identify your defaults, uh, improve your communication, improve your leadership. You've got to actively work on becoming a really good leader um, because it's not something that we're taught and just being a good strength coach isn't good enough anymore. Um, and, and so you've got to learn how to more formally mentor people. Um, you know, because essentially, essentially that's your job is to have your staff replace you. So, so yeah, it's, it's a difficult process and, and your relationships change, you know, you, you're not the person the athletes will come to anymore, you know, when, when they're going through a separation or when they're having a hard day because you've moved one step closer to management, often you're just a little more at arm's length. And so those relationship changes that happen are quite difficult psychologically, but you, you've just got to sort of get used to them um, and understand that that's just the nature of, of the role you've moved into. Would there be any resources that you've either gone through or heard them recommended that people listening could investigate because at some point they may be looking to move into a leadership role? Is there anything out there that you would uh, put them onto? Yeah. Um, the work I've I've done, you know, through my uh, leaders in sport membership, has been been huge for me. Um, I've I've had a, a a life coach for probably twelve years now. Um, invested pretty significant amount of of my own money in that, just because it's an investment in myself. Um, so that's personally crosses personal and professional. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, everything from from pure psychotherapy. Yeah. taking you through, you know, some really difficult times in your life all the way through how do you deal with with the relationships and the dynamics at work? You know, if you've got a really difficult coaching uh, staff in, in terms of personality and you're not very strong in confrontation, um, if you want the job, <laughs> you're going to have to be in those environments, right? And so, so you have to get better in those environments. And so... Uh, you can practice becoming better at that and you can be taught how to do that. So I think finding a coach or a mentor um, and investing in yourself is, is huge. And there are leadership courses out there, you know, that um, Harvard Business School do some great online leadership uh, courses. And um, it, it's not around sport. We have to stop thinking now we need a sports leadership course, not just go out there and find leadership, you know, because the principles are, are the same no matter what. I know a little bit pushed for time, so I'm going to ask you one more question. I think it's going to be, I hope it's going to be a good one. From your perspective, being the position you're in, obviously making hires, is there any particular gaps, and we're talking about practitioners now, so strength coaches, sports scientists, 
Phys- could be physios, could be any of this this performance staff. Any particular gaps that you see in skill sets that need to be plugged and people can upskill in so they can plug them for someone like you in the future? And what is the um, next thing? What is the next expectation for staff coming into roles like those? Two questions in one. I think um, communication um, is... is- a critical piece because as I said we we become very good at our jobs we become very technically savvy we we know a lot about what we do and we sort of assume that the athlete's knowledge is sort of coming with ours so how do you communicate to someone who knows absolutely nothing about what you do and doesn't frankly care about it all that much you know athletes like playing their sport they're not exercise science students so how do you articulate and how do you create behavior change? Um, and then I, I think a um, being able to stay within the fundamentals and use that as a, as a foundation for innovation rather than as you innovate, moving away from the, the fundamentals. You know, I think that that's a, a really critical piece is, is really building on top of um, core fundamental traits, you know, whether it's strength, power, athleticism. You know, we, we sort of get off in the weeds a little bit. So I, I think that those are probably gaps that are sort of emerging. Um, and then there's still a, a staggering lack of interest in nutrition um, and psychology within um, some professional sports, not all of them, not all clubs, <clears throat> but there's there's a, a lack of value placed on it by by clubs. So I think, again, these are, nutrition and psychology are such core fundamental pieces of performance that before we start getting into the future of you know the, the human being 2.0, I think sometimes the answer is still inside the box, uh, and we've got to solve the the problems that can be very very impactful right away. Um, but then, yeah, that, that's where I think we need to go and, and keep working to build resilience within our athletes and robustness and, and having them be able to withstand the demands, um, of, of their sport rather than protect them from those demands. So that this is where I think we'll, we'll come back to. Jazz, superb. We've come to the hour. We've three minutes past the hour. So <laughs> I was, I was kidding to start that I'd keep you to the hour, but where can people find out more about you, about the work that you're doing uh, in New York, wherever, it, you know, previous work, PhD, all that kind of stuff? Um, yeah, I, I don't do a lot in the public uh, space, so maybe a bit on LinkedIn. Um, I'll retweet some stuff on uh, on Twitter every now and then. You can see some pictures of my cat on uh, on the Instagram. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Dr. Jeremy Bethel on, on Twitter, Jeremy Bethel on, on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's usually the best spots. Superb. Jez, have a good rest of the day. Stay on, we'll have a little chat after, but um, officially, thank you very much and uh, right. look forward to keeping in touch. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Rob. Thanks, mate. 
thanks for tuning in to episode 399 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Jeremy for squeezing me in to the diary just before a game in the evening, so really appreciate that. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, iMeasureU, Kitman Labs, Samsung Equipment, and Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate their support. And obviously, the podcast could not run its current form without the support of those who are listening. So thank you very much, and I will chat to you next week. Thank you.